Good morning. Uh, well, I'm going to start with my own prayer. Lord, I thank you for this morning, this opportunity, and, and this fellowship in this house, Lord. And we just pray for your continued glory over this meeting this morning, Father, and let your word flow forth in your name. Amen. Well, the topic this morning is the love of God, which is a much bigger topic than is meant to be covered in one morning, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, I'm going to start, start reading this morning with Ephesians 3, verses uh, 16 through 19. <coughs> Excuse me, Ephesians 3. 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Bible teaches us that God is love. Um, John says that in 1 John 4 and a couple other places. So we know that God is love, but how do we know what love is? This is a question that, uh, not just on, on love, but an, an issue that the Lord's highlighted to me in the last couple of years is that often as Christians, we, we come into the faith and we come into the word um, and we read the Bible and we come across these, these words but we often make the error of trying to understand God and the Word through our perceived definitions of words. And the problem is that our definitions are learned through our experiences and our environments, and they might not necessarily be the same as God's definitions. You know, we, if you read, if someone reads the Bible, I mean, if all of us read the Bible and we read God as love, every single one of us from our childhood, from our parents, from our environment, we got a different picture of what love looks like, Right? And, uh, and none of our definitions are perfect because only God has the perfect definition, you know. And, and there's, there's, been a, there's extreme examples, you know. For example, one person comes into the Word and reads God as love and says, well, the, person, the love I saw as a kid was my dad beating my mom up and then telling her he loves her. I'm not sure about this God is love thing. And somebody else says, well, I know what love is. When we were kids, our parents gave us everything we wanted because love doesn't say no, and you know, it, love was just love was entitlement. And we can see clearly that both of the, neither of those are accurate definitions of love. But the fact is that, well, hopefully none of us have those extreme definitions. Um, all of us, our our perception of words and what they mean is is uh, determined by by our history, by our environment, our growing up. You know. And so what I've realized is that part of discipleship, part of coming to know God, is not just learning the words, but allowing God to reteach me what they mean. And so we're going we're gonna to focus a little bit on that this morning. Um, God is the author of truth. That's why we know that we can get the correct definitions from him. You know, there's, I know a lot of smart and wise people, but no one... No one besides God is the author of truth. Um, being the author of truth means that God doesn't derive truth. You know, people, smart people, figure out truth. You know, we, we study, whether it's in the Bible, we study the Word and we can read 
Hebrew and Greek definitions, and we can figure things out, but we're just trying to figure out the truth. God creates the truth. I mean, and that, that's something that, uh, it's kind of a mind-blowing concept. God's the only one who, who creates truth. Um, Psalms 119 and John 17 both say, your word is truth. God's word, not just the written word, but God's spoken word is truth. It creates truth. And we see the most clear example of this in Genesis in the creation story. when God literally created with his word. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And what he actually said, if, if I, I looked up the, the Hebrew parallel for that. What God, I mean, we, we put it in English to make the sentence flow better, but what God said is, there is light, and there was light. It, it's the same verb. <laughs> it's what the, it says, God said, there is light, and there is light. You know, when, when God says, when, when I say something, I'm trying to say truth. You know, I, for the best of my ability, I'm trying to say truth. When God says something, it becomes truth. When God says something, it is truth because he's God. It's not, he's not just stating truth. God wasn't saying there's light because he saw some light. God said it and it became because God were, God's word is truth and it creates truth. And so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, like I said a minute ago, when we try to understand God through our earthly understanding of words instead of allowing God to redefine our words with his truth, what we're doing is limiting our understanding to our own capacity instead of allowing him to define himself to us. That The scripture we started with from Ephesians, it's got this crazy phrase in there in verse 19. It says, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Exactly what, exactly what Paul said is that we would know the love which is unknowable. But he says we can do it. And so what he's alluding there is that we can only actually know God's love by having it revealed by God. It's unknowable by earthly means because there's no, like, there's, we cannot by earthly means comprehend the definition of God's love. Only through him can we do it. Um, and then the last part of that verse is that you would be filled with the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Saying that we can't, we can't be filled with the fullness of God without his love. We, we can't figure out Christianity. We can't really do Christianity in fullness without his love. In fact, we can't really even start, but we'll get to that. Um. Another, uh, another example of, of these words that we mistake sometimes is, is goodness. Um, I mean, there's a lot, you know. I, and one thing I've realized, the more I study the Bible, the more, uh, the more specific it is. Like, the Bible actually gives us these definitions. Oftentimes, at least in, in my experience, we come into... Like I said, we come into faith and we start learning things about God. We start learning God is love. God is good. Uh, we, we start learning about the attributes of God and the attributes he calls us to of faith and hope and um, belief, you know. And we get all these words and we kind of start trying to understand them, but we, we usually start out trying to understand them through our own means. 
And uh, the, more I, the more I read the Word and study the Bible, the more I realize that he really, he gives us the definitions of these things. You know, in, in, our, um, in our culture, we kind of uh, introduce, like our, our culture kind of holds love as like an abstract thought, you know. Our, our culture, in our, in our academic culture, um, very much props up the abstract, and that goes back to kind of Greek influence on our academics and stuff, but like the philosophers were all about the the woulda, coulda, shouldas, the, the abstracts, you know, these ideas out here that, so that we got this idea that love and hope and faith are kind of just concepts that we can't really understand. And so, and we kind of, you know, we grow up in our, in our culture and that's kind of the idea that we get, that these are, these are these concepts out here. We kind of have an idea, but no one can really know. And so the problem is when we become believers and we read the Bible and the Lord tells us to love, we go, well, how can I do an abstract thought? And we, and we, we kind of, we often come into this, this conflict um, and these questions. But the Bible, in the Bible, the Lord is really literal. The Lord... I mean, sometimes we read things and they appear as abstracts, but the Lord is pretty literal, and he gives us definitions and, and for pretty much everything. I mean, and the, I mean, the more I read it and reread it, the more I'm like, oh, you, like, there, there's actually meanings to this. It's not just these ideas and, and abstracts. Like, God actually ha has meaning and definition in here. And so... Uh, like I said, another, just like I said, I could use, there's tons of, tons of words that I think the Lord wants to define for us, but the other example I was going to use is goodness. We read in the Bible that God is good. It says that over and over. Um, I think it's one of the most repeated phrases, I think, throughout the Old and New Testament is the goodness of God. But do we know what good means? Again, as an earthly person, I've got an idea of what good means, you know, from, from the way I grew up. I mean, I would say... Um, pizza is good, but kale is not good. You know, that, that's how I would use the word, one way I would use the word. I mean, so what, what does good mean to me? Well, usually it means pleasant, fun, beneficial, preferable, you know, things that I like are good. That's how I'm going to use the word, you know. And so if I understand God that way and say God is good, well, that, you know, that kind of gives me an idea that God is the things I like, right? But then if you read the Bible and you read the whole Bible, you're going to come into some confrontation with that belief. Um, you know, I'd say prosperity is good, poverty is not, comfort is good, pain is not good. But again, what does the Bible say? The story of Job, the book of Job is a story of God's goodness. But it doesn't match my definitions of comfort or prosperity or, you know, pleasantness. Um, it isn't, it certainly isn't comfortable. In fact, if God is good and God is perfect in nature and character, that means he never breaks his character. If God says he's good, it means he's good all the time, not most of the time. You know, people, people might say, call me a good person, but the best I can be is good most of the time, you know, because I don't have perfect character. God has perfect character. That means when he says something about himself, he is that all the time. So if God is good all the time, and this book is a history of God and his interaction with the earth, then 
That leaves some questions, especially in the Old Testament. And, um, but if he is good, then the whole Bible is a story of his goodness and his love. So, you know, this is a, a question that occurred to me that I, I popped to somebody a while back. You know, we look at the story of the Israelites. Was the deliverance of Israel from Egypt good? Well, yeah. It was good for the Israelites, but what about the Egyptians? Was it good for the Egyptians? Because God's not just half good. God did that. He performed that work. But it says God, and it doesn't say he's good to some people. It doesn't say he's, he's good half the time. I mean, it does say he's good to those who serve him, and that, that's the topic of covenant that we don't really have time to get all into t today. But like when God split the Red Sea, was it good when God split the Red Sea? Yeah. But was it good when the waters came back on the people of Egypt? Well, God says he's good. It doesn't say half of what he does is good. So these are definitions that are shaped by my environment and my culture that I need to allow God to redefine for me. Um, because if my definition of goodness or love or anything else has trouble fitting with God's character in the entirety of the Bible, then it means my definition needs adjustment, not the Bible. And uh, you see one of the most common um, errors that you'll see people make sometimes in Christianity is adapting the Bible to their definitions. I mean, I, I've heard people, just kind of people of uh, immature faith, I would get, I guess, would say, well, I think that part of the Old Testament must have been mistranslated because I don't think that could be good. I don't, I don't think that was actually God. I, you know, it might have got mistranslated or the old writers might have been mistaken or something, but what they're doing is they're trying to understand through my understanding, through, the, through their earthly understanding, and apply it to the Bible. And, and that's a mistake. That's an error because the Bible is accurate. It's an accurate description of God. And so if my understanding doesn't match something in the Bible, then it's my understanding that needs to be adjusted. Um, we need God's help to refine our understanding so that we can see rightly. On his goodness, God's goodness, in short, means that he has perfect integrity and character. He will never break his word. He will always do what he says, and he will operate perfectly in the terms of his covenant. That's what God's goodness means. God's goodness doesn't mean he's going to be nice and comfortable all the time. It means that he will do what he says. If you want to know what he says he's going to do, you've got to read the Bible. <laughs> um, that's just, on, just an, an example. Um, let's read Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 7, on this topic of our, our definitions and understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For the length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So this is, this is what I'm talking about 
about allowing the Lord to adjust our understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's the biggest, one of the biggest um, issues, I think, in our culture today is we have a very kind of arrogant humanist society. Like, we place a lot of weight on our own understanding. The way I see the world is pretty much the way it is, you know? That's, that's just cultural, you know? And, and uh, we see it in, in uh, well, everywhere, in every aspect of our society, leaning on our own understanding. Like, we just have this really strong pride based on our own knowledge and perception and understanding. But what he says, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. So I looked up that word acknowledge because, you know, we use the word, the word acknowledge in modern English is kind of really kind of weak and passive, you know. For me to acknowledge Henry is like, hi Henry, <laughs> you know. But that's not what it says. The word, the, the Hebrew word that they use there means to know with certainty or to know intimately. It's the same word used in the Old Testament when it says the man knew his wife and she became pregnant. It's the, it's the same word. It, there's intimacy and certainty, and this, it's the same used. Um, it was one of the other examples, other places it's used, to, to know that the Lord is good. It's to, to know with certainty and intimacy. That's what it means to acknowledge, in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. In all your ways to know the Lord with certainty and intimacy. And that means, you know, that's, that's a process that comes through discipleship. Um, when I spoke a couple months ago, I talked about um, all of our ways, heart, mind, body, and soul was kind of was kind of what I what I focused on there. But the process of submitting all of my ways to the Lord, it's not that doesn't happen overnight. I I I can't um, apply the Lord's submission to all of my ways all at once. You know that that's a process that I go through. Uh, in in maturity and in discipleship. But that's what he commands us to do. In all of our ways, know him intimately and submit to him, and he shall direct your paths. And that phrase, that he shall direct your paths, means to make it smooth, straight, or right. He will make your paths, your, your ways, or the way we go through life, smooth, straight, and right. And, and that's a blessing. I mean, that, that, that's a promise. It's worth pursuing. Anyway, um, today's message is about God's love. John 15 tells us to abide in his love. Christ tells us to love one another. And 1 John tells us that God is love. So, back to definitions. If we're going to know God and we're going to do any of these things and do them right, we have to know what we're talking about. So what is love? And we're going to go through a few points. Um, kind of the order of love. Some of you remember when I spoke a couple months ago, one of the things I highlighted is that God puts everything in order. God, I mean, he, it, you look up order in the Bible and it's, it's all over the place. You know, it says he divided the land from the sea. He placed the sun over the day, the moon over the night. He placed mankind over creation. He placed man over woman. You know, he, like order is a strong value to God. And so there's also an order of love. Um, 
Number one, love is God's motive for humanity, for creation, salvation, provision, and redemption. God's love is the reason all of this exists. Love is the only reason, well, yeah, I think I can say that fairly confidently. Love is pretty much the only reason God created creation because, like, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us. Um, we don't really materially benefit God in any way. He didn't, you know, he didn't need more farmland to fill up the storehouses of heaven or anything, you know. The only real reason that God created all of this was love. Um, Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Because of his good pleasure and his love, he planned all this before the foundations of the world. That's why he did all this. A Revelation 13.8 calls Christ the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Love is the reason that Christ died, which we'll talk more about in a minute, when it's all, and that was planned before the foundation of the world. His love, like, there's not really even any other reason that you can justify or make sense why else, why God would create, why would he create the world, why he would create all of all of us. It's, a, it's his love. So love is not just a, God is, love is not just an attribute of God. It is his primary um, motive and reason. Number two, love is God's primary sentiment towards us, his children. This is one that a lot of people have trouble believing. Love is God's primary sentiment, his primary feeling towards us, his children. Um, I'm going to just read a couple quick verses here. Psalms 149, verse 4, says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Psalm 147, 11, says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Psalms 139, verse 17, How precious are your thoughts towards me, O God. And Isaiah 62, verse 4, one of my favorites, You shall be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in you. The Lord calls us his delight. Delight is a, is a special kind of thing. Like, you know, God tells me to love my neighbors, so I try to do that. But I don't delight in all, I don't delight in all my neighbors, you know. But I'd, I'll tell you who I delight in is my kids. Like, when I come home and my kids get all excited, you know, because eight hours is a long time when you're three years old, you know. They feel like they haven't seen me in ages, and my kids go, Daddy! And run to the door, because my kids are still young enough to do that, you know. Like, that, that brings delight. Delight is a special kind of love. You know, there's, there's different kinds of love, um, which we're not going to go into today. But that's the kind of love that the Lord feels for us. And it's really important, if we're going to understand God's love, because it, it's kind of the linchpin of this whole thing, then... It's really important to understand how he loves us, but that, that's, that's difficult to grasp. We'll come back to that. Um, Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord 
has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. He loved us before the foundations of the world, and his love is everlasting. His love isn't off and on. It's not a mood. It's not just a feeling of God. It, it is his character and motivation. Um, I was listening to somebody yesterday talking about this. And he said, he, he, lit, he read, actually, I think I might have got all these scriptures from him. He listed a lot of these, and he said, when we think of ourselves as people in whom God takes pleasure, people in whom he takes delight, that inspires us to want to be with him. You know, there's this um, very simple, predictable part of human nature where I like to be around people that I think like me. You know, I'd re- I don't like to be around people that I know don't like me. I like to be around people who like me, you know, and, and even more so people that love me. Like, you know, there's just that assurance of relationship. It's a lot easier, a lot more fun, a lot more pleasant to be around people that you know are going to like you and love you. And so have un- understanding God's love for us is really the first step in walking with him and having a close relationship with him um because it like you know it's just it's just basic human nature if you're not sure he loves you then you're not sure he really wants to spend time with you you know um another way to say that is when we abide in the love that god has for us that gives us the energy and means to love him back um number three Love is God's motive for sending Christ and Christ's motive for dying. This is pretty clear in Scripture. The most, most popular, most best-known Scripture, John 3.16. Because God so loved the world, he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But it, it ends with telling you what happened. He sent his only Son so that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. But it starts with why. And you can't take that part out. It's because for God so loved the world, because he so loved the world, that he sent his son. Um, Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us. God says he loves us. You know, the, like I said, Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah say that God loves us. But when Christ came, he demonstrated his own love toward us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He loved us first. He didn't send Christ to die for us because we loved him enough. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this this point right here is really what said, like I said a minute ago, makes... God's love, the linchpin of Christianity, because without that, without Christ dying, there is no Christianity. We're not here. We don't, we don't have this faith, this religion at all. Christ dying for, on the cross for our sins is the reason that all of this exists, and the reason for that is his love. And so I was just, when I was meditating on this, I was just thinking about, like, you can't, sometimes we Many Christians, I think, 
do Christianity without really understanding God's love? You know, because we can do it. You know, we can, what does it mean to be a Christian? I said the sinner's prayer. I go to church. I read my Bible. I do my best to walk the Christian life. We can do the actions, but you've got to go back to the, to the source, to the why. The only reason that we do it all, the only reason we even have the opportunity to do it at all, is God's love. You can't take that part out, or, or there is nothing. You know, if, you, if, you, if God didn't love us, if, you, if you're not sure about that point, if God doesn't love us, then Christ wouldn't have died, and we don't have any of this. So it, it's it, the foundation and the linchpin of our, of our faith of our relationship with God, of the whole existence of what we do as Christians, is God's love. Um, I'm gonna grab a water. Check my my water, man. Thanks. Ah, uh, hmm. learning more about love. Number four. Love is our primary commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Matthew, in Luke, and repeat uh, several times in Deuteronomy. Uh, John 15, 9 to 14 says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Uh, then, oh yeah, it goes on. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You'll notice, I was going to mention this earlier, but I forgot, that uh, I've got a lot of scripture in here. And that's because I've realized that when you teach something foundational from the Bible, it pretty much teaches itself, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, when I was um, sort of, I guess, learning how to preach, when I was a teenager, I was a youth leader, and the youth pastor would make us preach every once in a while, and I started out hating it, you know, but I kind of, um, often what I would do is, like, I would pray to the Lord, ask for a, an idea or a topic or whatever, and, and so I would try to get some good thoughts and then find some scriptures to back them up, which is really, which is pretty common, I think, for um, early bo young believers, I guess, which I was. Which, but it's kind of the backwards way to do it. If you read the Bible, like if you really read the Bible, it teaches itself. Like, yeah, I, it, it, I mean, it just does when you start looking, especially something as foundational and basic as the love of God. Like, I, I don't have to try to. I don't have to write a message to try to convince you of this and try to find a couple scriptures to back it up. I could teach this message 100% by reading scripture because it's all in there. Like, when you really get to the foundations of faith, the Bible teaches us itself. We don't have to take man's words for it. So that's why I read a lot of scripture. And 
in these messages because I don't, I want it to be clear that, uh, that it's from the word, you know, it's not just, not just my good ideas. Um, where were we? We were at Ephesians 5. Um, so the four points I've covered so far. One, God's love is God's motive for creation and humanity. Two, God, love is God's primary sentiment towards us, his children. Number three, love is God's motive for sending Christ and Christ's motive for dying. Number four, love is our primary commandment. Now, number five, love is also the manifestation and measuring rod of a true believer. Um, John 13, 35 says, by this, all will, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Where the phrase comes from, they will know we are Christians by our love. Um, and the one that I just read a minute ago from John 15, John, John talks about God's love a lot. Probably more... I don't know, him and Paul might be close to a tie, but probably more than any other writer in the New Testament, but both in the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, and in Revelation. But John 15 has this interesting dynamic going on because it says he commands us to love, and then he tells us that love will be the evidence of our devotion to him. Um, I'm going to jump back to that John 15 uh, scripture that I read a minute ago. It's, it's in uh, verses 9 through 14, but he says, um, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So it's not just an instruction, it's also an evidence. Um, we're going to read some more of that in First uh, John. First John 4. Let me turn to that. I write down a lot of the scriptures in my notes to save time, but the long ones I just look up so I don't use as much paper. First John, all the way back there, getting to the scary part at the end. Uh, what did I say? First John 4, I'm going to start in verse 7. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for, the, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. That's a harsh one right there. He who does not love does not know God. You know, I was talking a little bit ago about how we can, we can attempt to do the Christianity thing without love. But what John says here is, he who does not love does not know God. It's, it's evidence. That's harsh. I'm going to keep going. Uh, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He's repeating John 3.16 there. That's how God showed his love to us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Again, he's making that 
emphasis on evidence. It's because of this that we know we abide in him. How do we know that we abide in God? Because we have the evidence of his love. Because we love. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. What did I say? I'm going to go to uh, 21. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We loved him... We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So it's not just an instruction. It's also a measuring gauge. You can't, I mean, John's kind of harsh. He's a pretty blunt writer. He says, you cannot say you love God if you don't love your brothers, because that is evidence of actually loving God. <clears throat> Number six, love is our motivation to please God and fulfill his law. Um, and this is an interesting, like I said, going, kind of uh, from John 15, interesting dynamic. We're commanded to love, and then we're told that if we love, we'll follow his commandments. Um, Jeremiah 31.3 says, oh wait, hang on, sorry, I'm on the wrong, I jumped to the wrong page, I already read that one. <laughs> love is our motivation to please God and fulfill his law. Pleasing God is not the means to God's love. Having a desire to please God is the result of knowing his love. And th this goes back to that point I, may, I read a while ago, when we, when we understand how much God loves us, it's an incentive to want to please God, right? When I know that God loves me, I want to love God back. I want to please God. Pleasing God is not how I get God to love me. God loved me before, before I was born, before the world was created. While I was still a sinner, God loved me. So I, there, I'm not, I have no means to get God to love me, but he already does. Um, but pleasing God, desiring to please God, is a result of being established in his love. <clears throat> There's an interesting um, thing about Christ, that Christ, the only man in history who was fully secure in his identity and God's love for him, God, Christ knew who he was. He knew he was the Son of God, and he was not... Christ was never insecure about God's love for him. You know, he, he knew who he was. He knew how much the Father loved him. He talked about it repeatedly. Christ reciprocated God's love and demonstrated his identity by fulfilling the law. So his righteousness, his obedience was motivated by his law, by his love, not a means to, to get love. 
His obedience was motivated by the love he knew the Father had for him and his love back for the Father. His obedience was not to try to get love. And that's a, a really, really crucial um, switch that some of us have to make because the Bible is really clear that we can't earn God's love. First of all, because none of our works are righteous enough to earn his love, but primarily because he already loved us first. We can't earn something that he's already got, that he already gave us. But our righteousness should be motivated by his love for us and our love for him. So, practically speaking, what does love mean? How do we love? Because we can, you know, like I said, in our culture, we can, we can talk about the concept all day, but if we don't know what it actually looks like, you know, how do, we, how do I do it? Hands on, boots on the ground. How, how do I do that? What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at. How do we love? Christ demonstrated love for us. Christ demonstrated life for us. I mean, specifically, he demonstrated the Christian life for us. So to love rightly, we love the way Christ loved, and he demonstrated perfect love for both God and people. Christ demonstrated the first and second commandment perfectly. To love God is to obey him. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then in uh, 14, verse 21, it said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We, we, we talked about that. Obedience to God, or love for God, means obedience. Christ, like I said, Christ knew how much his father loved him, and he said, I have come to fulfill the law, and I must do my father's work. So to love God is obedience to God in the word. That's reading this book, knowing it, and living it out is how we demonstrate our love to God. But our love to people is a little bit different. Remember, we talked about how God puts everything in order. And there are different types, or at least different manifestations of love. So Loving God means obeying him. Loving people doesn't mean obeying everybody. You know, that wouldn't really make sense. But we do know that we do everything the way Christ did it. So to love others is to treat them as Christ treated us. John 15, 9 says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Love is takes a... Uh, an order, a hierarchy, kind of like authority, in that it trickles down. You know, Christ said, uh, I do my Father's will. I send the Spirit to do my will. You, therefore, go be led by the Spirit and do my will. The love thing is kind of similar. Christ said, my as my Father loved me, therefore I can love you. As I loved you, therefore you love one another. Love has to trickle down. Um... So how, how does he love us? By laying himself down in sacrifice and service even before we knew we needed him. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, a verse in Colossians that I didn't write down uses the phrase dead in sin and trespasses. So Christ tells us to love one another as he loves us. That gives us a picture of, of how we're supposed to do it. And how he loved us is 
laying himself down before we even had any gratitude for it, before we even wanted it. You know, it, it's pretty easy, I mean, fairly easy for me to show love to people when they, you know, when they ask for it. It's a lot harder to show love to people that don't even have any gratitude for it, you know, to, to give to people, to help people out that, that don't even have a good attitude about it, you know. That, that's a lot harder. But the Bible repeats over and over that that's exactly what Christ did for us. And then he commanded us to love the way he did. That's, that's a hard burden. That's a hard assignment. Um, I am not a source of love. I'm only a channel. This is, goes back to what I said a minute ago when Jesus, in John 15 when Jesus said, as the, the Father loved me, so I can love you. Because I love you, you can love others. Love trickles down. It has to come from somewhere. And we are not a source of love. Um, I'm not a source of love. I'm only a channel. Or as I heard somebody say one time, I'm not a, I cannot be a well. I'm only a pump. I can only output what I intake. I cannot give something I don't have, and I can't output something I'm not intaking. Therefore, the Lord's commandment for me to love him and others is a, also a command to receive his love. If he commands me to love my neighbor as myself, and also to love my neighbor as he loves me, then I am commanded to love myself by accepting and abiding in his love. The world, this is where the world gets this wrong and screws it up. You know, our world believes in, in love, love people, love other. you know, that, talk to an unsaved person, that's probably their favorite part of the Bible, love your neighbor, right? Our, our culture also right now is very much into self-love. If, if you're on social media at all, you see that around phrase around. Learn to love yourself. The problem is we cannot create love. I am not a source of love. I can't muster up love for myself. I can only give what I'm given. And so people who don't know the Lord and don't have the Lord's love in their life, they're trying to love themselves and they're trying to love other people from a, from a dry pump. They don't have anything to give. And so we, you know, we try to do it with our actions and and self-love usually turns into basically self-centeredness, doing stuff for myself all the time to try to show myself that I love me, but there's not actually any love behind it because I don't have any. The only way that we can walk in the Lord's word is, and in his love is by receiving it from him. And so this is a, a message that I haven't heard a lot in the church because self-love, because the world misuses it, it comes across as self-centeredness a lot. You know, we know that we're taught to lay ourselves down. We know that humility and sacrifice are, are values of the Lord. So we often don't talk about the fact that the Lord commands us to love ourselves. But if he told us to love our neighbor as ourself, and he told us to love our neighbor as Christ loved us, in that equation there is the fact that I need to love myself. And the only way I can do that is by accepting the intake of the Lord's love for me. Um, that's the hard part for many people, accepting God's love and loving themselves accordingly. Um, like I said, many people try to skip that step and go straight to loving others, but you can't give something you haven't received. And once again, I cannot create love. 
This is why most relational problems, regardless of context, stem from a root of self-hatred, which is really the lack of self-love. You know, there's people who say, oh, I don't hate myself, but I don't really love myself either. There's not a lot of gray area in God's principles. Um, if you don't love yourself, you probably have self-hatred, whether it, whether it feels that way or not. You know, self-hatred is something we don't have time to teach on this morning, but it manifests in a lot of ways. Um, but it's, it's a lack of self-love. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself and do it God's way if you don't love yourself God's way. Accepting God's love for you isn't pride or conceitedness. It's the opposite. It's accepting his love so it can pour through you and you can lay your life down for others like Christ. It's only through the empowerment of God's love that we can truly live in sacrifice and service to others. Um, yeah. So we're going to close up with uh, the love chapter, the pri the, probably the best-known resource about love in 1 Corinthians 13, so that we can get an act get a description of what this looks like. Well, there's another note that I'm going to make here before we, before we jump into that, and that's um, something I was thinking about. In the context of marriage, like I just said, most relational problems stem from lack of self-love because if I don't have love coming in, I don't have love to give out. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. The hierarchy trickle-down equation of love, like I just described, means that just as I must first be loved by God before I can love him back, I must be loved by God, by God and love my wife so that she can love me back. Henry said something to me a while back when we were talking about marriage that, that kind of surprised me because I've never thought about it before. The Bible commands husbands to love their wives, but it doesn't command wives to love their husbands. That's not a, he doesn't command wives to love their husbands, but he says when husbands love their wives, wives will learn to love their husbands. Just like because God loves me, then I can love him. Because I love my husband first, or sorry, my wife, <laughs> because I love my wife first, then she can love me. But her... Like, I would like my wife to love me without me having, you know, regardless of, of my own love. Because sometimes, sometimes I'm not good at loving. But it's just like trying to love our neighbor without being filled with the love of Christ. Um, it doesn't, that, that's her trying to pump, trying to push the pump backwards. It, it doesn't work that way. It's trying, to, it's trying to flow uphill. I have to be filled with love. Christ was filled with love from the Father so that Christ could love me so that I can love my wife and my children and others. It flows that way because God created it that way. Um, and so there's a, that command in Ephesians that I just read, to love your wives as Christ loves the church, is really like critical to relationship and marriage because without the, like I am in, God intended in the, context of marriage that God created, he intended for me to be the input of love, not, not anybody else. And so my, it's vital for my marriage that I be receiving love from the Lord. All right, we're going to wrap up by reading 1 Corinthians 13. It's not too long. 
but I'm going to start with uh, the last verse of chapter 12, because that intros chapter 13. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And even if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could even move mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. And even if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy Love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. But we, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, <clears throat> sorry, then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your love, Lord. And I pray that you continue to teach me and teach us your love, Lord. Teach us that nothing we do, nothing we do is worth anything without your love, Father. Like your word says, it profits nothing. It gains nothing, Lord. Father, I just pray for an inpouring of your love that for each person here, Lord, that you would begin to show us your love, Father, because even just reading it and just knowing about it isn't enough, Lord. You desire us to experience your love, Father. I pray that you would speak to each person here, Lord, and share your love for us, Father. Reveal your love for us so that we can abide in your love and reveal your love to others, Father. Bless our day and our week, Father. In your name, amen.